Today's scripture comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 31. The word of God speaks. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it is so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Hope you are well. My name is Jeff Nine. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, would actually love to love to get to meet you. Um, we are. Uh, if you've uh, haven't been around, uh, or have missed a couple of weeks, or if this is your first Sunday, we've been in the middle, or we just started a couple of weeks ago, a walk through the first eleven chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, and this wasn't because as pastors we were like, hey, we're kind of bored. What do we want to preach? We haven't preached out of an Old Testament book in a while. Let's throw a dart at the at the uh, wall and figure out what it is. Oh, we're preaching Genesis. The reason we chose this book to study is because it has, it deals with and answers and addresses and asks some of the most important questions for navigating our day today. Now, we are taught often that books written a long time ago shouldn't say anything about our current moment, and that's just not true. These 11 chapters of Genesis have profound insight and, prof- and speak profound things to us navigating our current cultural moment, which feels a little hard to navigate, right? And so it's because these questions are not just in our culture, but are in us, we said, hey, I think it's wise for us. And we felt the Spirit lead us to walk through these 11 chapters. So the reason I preface that is because what we're asking God to do is some deep and profound things in us as a church over the next couple of months. And so it's towards that end, I want to pray, and I want to ask you to pray, because we're, what our, our hope here is not that we simply come out with uh, a little bit more data and some more underlines in our Bible, and then we, go, then we go home to lunch. Like, what we're actually hoping for is that God would change us. He would actually transform us. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray. Let's, let's ask God to, to move through his word and through his spirit. Spirit of God, speak to us. Spirit of God, would you speak to us? Would you help us understand your word? Would you bring clarity to your word? Would you transform us? Teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we want to focus in on this morning is the, the, the question or the topic of what it means to be human. So there's a fundamental question that whether we ask it explicitly or whether it's kind of hovering underneath the surface, we're regularly asking the question, who are we and why are we here? Who are we and why are we 
here. In one sense, it would seem like that question is pretty obvious. Like if I were to ask you to describe a human, you might be able to give me some things about it. But when you got down to navigating the nuances of that, you're probably going to stumble a little bit. And here's why. Like humans are an enigma. We're an enigma. We, we define easy categorization in many ways because of how God has made us. Now, let's be absurd for a little bit. If I came to you in the end of July, in the heat of mosquito season, um, signs of the curse, I think, um, and I said, hey, this week I sprayed my backyard and I have zero mosquitoes. You would be leaning forward going, tell me, how did you do it? Did you use cutter? Did you use some other product? Did you hire a server? Like, how did you do that? You would be wondering how. If I came back to you the next Sunday and said, hey, I got rid of another neighborhood pest, you're like, really? Well, my neighbor was playing really loud music. He's buried in a shallow grave. You'd have me committed. You'd call 911 right then to have me arrested, right? Okay. So like, I know that sounds absurd, but here's my, here's my fundamental question. What actually separates humanity from other created beings? It's actually an important question. What separates humans from ants? Or maybe we should say, let's, let's, let's tighten the window a little bit. What separates us from really intelligent orangutans? We're octopodes. I think that actually is the plural of octopus, which is awesome. Octopodes. They're supposed to be really intelligent. What separates us besides the fact that they have more limbs? I think there's a lot more at work in this, but I want us to stop for just a moment and actually reflect on this question. What does it mean to be human? Because actually our culture values humanity more than it values other things. And yet it actually has lost the basis for believing that to be what ought to be. In other words, if we don't believe in a God who creates, and if we don't believe in a God who instills certain things inside of humanity, there actually is no separating us and mosquitoes. Like logically, philosophically, there's, there's no distinction. And there are some people that try to make the absurd claim that there really is no distinction. But the problem is this too. We, we live in a cultural moment that has been so infused by Christian theology that we often do Christian things even if we're not aware of why we're doing them. There are ways in which we treat humans as special and as different, but it's not because our philosophy got us there. It's because God declared it so, and we're still drafting off of that in Western culture. But I fear that it's a little bit like a sinkhole developing. You know what a sinkhole looks like, and you've seen the pictures where there's a, a beautiful house on this, on this cliff, and, and it's, it's overlooking the ocean. And then one day, out of the middle of nowhere, the, the, the ground underneath the house collapses, and it all turns to rubble. Why? Well, it wasn't because one day, all of a sudden, the, the sand gave way. It was that slowly the foundation upon which it was built underneath was just being carried away to, where, to the point where the weight on top could not be carried by the foundation anymore. Here's what I'm afraid is happening in Western civilization. We are denying these fundamental truths that Scripture has given us while trying to maintain the truths that it was built upon and then hope that that's going to hold, and it will not hold. Now, it's not just true of Western civilization. It's true of our lives. That we can build ourselves upon these foundations, but then watch those foundations get slowly eroded, slowly eaten out from under us, and we find ourselves collapsing in a sinkhole because we lost sight of what that truth was built Upon This is why Genesis matters. 
And it's why particularly this morning, we want to look at a certain, a certain doctrine of Christian theology that's been held for the history of the church and even for Jewish tradition before that, that I think undergirds that. And that is this doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei. Imago Dei just simply means the image of God. That as humans, we're not just created as animals with a little more intellect and a little more self-awareness. There's actually something placed upon us, this image of God that sets us apart in profound, profound ways. This doctrine of the image of God, so much flows through it, so much assumed morality in our culture flows from this truth. Questions around ethics and society and family and government all follow from what you believe about the Imago Dei, whether you believe it's true or not. Questions of salvation, justice, mercy, kindness, all flow from this view of men and women created in the image of God. It shapes questions we face all the time. We face questions like this, and Imago Dei actually speaks to them. Does might make right? In other words, if I have enough power, is everything I do okay? That's what question our culture and society asks. Questions like this, how should we treat the vulnerable among us? How should we treat the unborn? How should we treat the elderly? How about the disabled? How about the immigrant, the poor, the prisoner, or even as we prayed this morning, the addicted? How should we treat? Can war ever be justified, and if so, when? How should I respond to my neighbor. All of these things are shaped by this doctrine in really, really practical and important ways. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at this idea of the image of God in three moves. The first is I want to look at the image of God given. What is it that God has given us when he has placed on us the image of God? What does that mean? What's included in that? That's our first move. Our second is I want to talk about how we deny the image of God. Ways in which we actually move to invert the image of God and subvert it. And then third, I want to look at how the image of God is redeemed in us. You ready to work? Hope so. Let's go. There is a lot of things that we could say. And if, we, if, you, if you were here last week, a lot of things we said about the gifts that God gave us in creation. You see, God didn't have to give us anything. He didn't have to create us at all. And he definitely didn't have to give us uh, capacities and abilities. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to do these things for us. God chooses to gift us in his creation things like this, like our very being itself, the fact that we are made body and soul. Christian doctrine will say, hey, you're not just a personality in a skin suit. You're a whole body. Your body matters. Your soul matters. You are a united being. God gave us our identity. He named us in creation. He named us collectively, and he names you individually. The psalmist will say, he knew me before I was in my mother's womb. Yet he names us. He gave us the gift of gender. We see that in this text, that he creates, the man in, or he creates uh, mankind in his image, male and female, he creates them. He gives that to us as a gift both genders 
beautifully different and distinct and yet equal in image. God gave you your gender as a, both as a gift to you and as a gift to the people around you. It gives you dignity and worth. Your life matters, not because you've accomplished something, not because your resume looks good, not because of your, your, your ancestry. You're, you've been given dignity and worth because God gave it to you. He calls you valuable. He, gave us, he gives us purpose to our lives. All of these beautiful things he gives us in creation, but all of those takes on even deeper meaning when we realize that he gives us his image. He creates us in the image of God, the imago Dei. So what is this image? Theologians have argued for this over the years. <laughs> And I have many thick books on my shelves, some of which have been read, all arguing for different understandings of what this Im image is. What is the Imago Dei? Is it your intellectual capability? Is it the fact that you're just really smart? Well, if so, I, I literally was listening to a podcast just a few months ago in which they were talking about the, the, at what point does AI actually gain enough intelligence for us to consider it as a person? Like, those are legitimate conversations. So if all we're talking about is mental capabilities, like, at what point does machine or ape become that? Is it just our moral capabilities? Well, I don't think so, because you actually see things inside of the animal universe in which there seems to be some form of morality. Like, what is it? What, what capacity, what ability do humans have that the image of God is, is, is in? I think it's really a service to us and a gift to us that the text doesn't name any of that. What is it? I mean... I can tell you, but I also don't 100% know all the nuances of it because Genesis wasn't here to give me the details of. I can say this. It's not based around IQ. It's not based on some ability that if you lose it, you all of a sudden lose your humanity. It's really important to recognize. It's really critical to understand this, that whatever the image of God is, it can't be measured in a test tube. It can't be measured with a mental, uh, mental acuity test. No human being lacks the image of God. It doesn't matter what faculties they seem to possess or seem to have lost. Some of the most precious humans I've ever encountered are people that would fail tests if we tried to give them to them. And yet God says my image is on them. See, here's the thing. The image of God will not be withheld and it will not be withdrawn from any human. It will not be withheld from any human, no matter if they're an embryo in development. And they will not be with, withdrawn because of loss of capability or loss of faculty. And Genesis here doesn't define, doesn't tell us this capacity, this faculty contains the image. It tells us this, that God gives us his image. But here's the thing. I think what the text does point us to is that the image of God actually gives meaning to what it means to be human. And I think the text that we read this morning leads us to see the image of God understood in three ways. Three ways. The first is this. That God, as he places, makes us in his image, actually gives us and calls us to a responsibility. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at verse 28 right after that. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Note here that God makes them in, in his image and immediately gives them a responsibility to fill the earth and to rule the earth. Now, if you were here last week, where else have you seen that? We see that's what God did. God created spaces in days one, two, and three in the universe that he then fills in days four, five, and six. He fills the earth. And what does it tell us all over that book? He's hovering over the waters. He takes, he takes what's formless and he brings beauty out of it. He reigns over it. He rules over it. God himself is the one who fills and rules. And then he calls us as humans to fill and to rule. Now, not in the same ways, clearly. I don't feel the heavens by creating another Jupiter. Maybe you can, I can't. I, didn't, I, I haven't tried, but, but I don't think I can. We don't, we don't fill in the same way, but he actually gives us this command, this responsibility that mirrors his responsibility. We are called to image God as we carry out this responsibility. And friends, this has massive implications for how we engage our world. The world that God has placed us in is not somebody else's to manage, friends. It's ours. It's ours to steward. There's not some cosmic maid that's going to come up and clean up after the party. There's not some cosmic butler that we just call in to do a task because we don't want to do it. God has called us to steward what he's given us. The creation around us, our neighborhoods, our nations, and our lawns. He's called us to fill and to rule. The second way in which this image takes place, I think, is through the idea of representation. Representation. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there are things, and I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, that there are things that um, had had you been alive when Genesis was written originally, some of these things would have made more sense because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, while the Bible was written for us, and it is, it wasn't written to us. As in, it was written to a people in a particular cultural moment who had particular understandings of what words mean. And so part of the way that we study the Bible is by trying to understand those cultures and those languages. And that's why we have scholars that learn Hebrew to try to interpret these texts. But one of the things that you'll miss if we're not aware of it is this, that when this was written, there was a convention among all the ancient Near Eastern people that the gods would call for the people to build a temple, and in the temple they would place the idol or the image of that god in. This was a prevalent thing, that across the ancient Near East, you would find that people would build temples to some god, and then they would take, they would craft an image meant to reflect that god and place him in the temple as the finishing of the building of the temple. That's historical, historical knowledge. What scholars have done is they've looked at Genesis and they've looked at it and compared it to that way and began to realize like what Genesis is showing us is that the Garden of Eden was being built like a cosmic temple. 
Matter of fact, if you go to the end of the Bible, if you go to Revelation and you see the, this new heavens and new earth is built as a new temple, and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of work to compare what is described in, uh, in the Pentateuch with what's described in Revelation. I don't have time to get into, but what's being described there is the new heavens and the new earth is a temple in which God himself dwells. There's not actually an image placed in that temple because God himself is the image. But what you see here is in the Garden of Eden is built like a temple. What's the last thing placed in the temple? the image of the God, that we are meant to represent God in the world. How we navigate this world matters because it is meant to reflect God. When we create, this is why art matters. Art is actually an expression of our, our, our moving in the way of God to actually to be creators, small c creators. We image God when we honor those around us. We image God when we bless others. We image God, listen friends, when we protect others. When we nurture, when we serve, all these things that we do, we represent God in the world. We're his image. Lastly, I think we look at one of the ways in which we image God is through our relationship with him. Look at verse 28 through 31. And God blessed them, listen to this, and God said to them. So, so God's done a lot of speaking in Genesis. He speaks and things are created, right? But not once in Genesis does he speak relationally to something else until right here. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the planet and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's interesting, I mean, it's important to recognize that while God will speak to the sun and the moon, he'll speak to, to the fish in the air in, in day five, he speaks in a different way to humans, and he relates to humans, not speaking to, a, to an object, but he speaks in an I-thou kind of relationship. He's building relationship. He's speaking and he's listening. You see him ask questions of Adam and Eve. You see him move towards them in ways he doesn't move towards the rest of his creation. He has built relationship with. That is one of the ways in which we carry the image of God is that we relate to one another and we relate to him. Robert Jensen says it this way in a brilliant little book called uh, A Theology and Outline. So to be made in the image of God is to have a role. And that role is to be in relationship and a discourse with God and to occupy a place in the story that God has and lives with his people. And that story is not random, but it has a plot. And the plot is given to it by the presence in the story of the author. In other words, we're not a story left out there. We're a story that he enters into. We carry the image in relationship. Now, as I said a while ago, the image of God can't be destroyed, but it can be denied. 
As in, we can live contrary to its truth. And I think it's really important for us to stop and recognize the ways we do it because this truth is profound, but in the same way that we talked about the, the fact that a foundation can slowly be eroded underneath a house, if we're not careful and we, we start denying the image of God in these ways, we actually start realizing we can lose our foundation before we realize it. So I want us to look for just a second at ways in which the image of God can often in our lives be denied, inverted, ignored, or opposed. The first is through the idea of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, when I say that, most of you immediately spring to ideas of polytheistic religions in which there are, there are golden objects or, or some kind of object that people bow down and worship. And that is idolatry, yes. There's also idolatry in our day and age that looks radically different, where we worship things rather than the creator. Romans 1, we'll talk about that. But I think it's important to recognize that there's two, there's two big, and both of them are big, but two problems with idolatry. I want to mention the first. I want to focus on the second. The first is this. Idolatry supplants the real God with a fake God. So our good friend, Sujus Jacob, emailed me this week or texted me this week some videos of what's happening in Mumbai this week as there's a, that the, they just ended a 10-day festival to the god Ganesh. And there's this massive elephant, uh, like 20 feet tall uh, idols wa- being marched through the city while everybody just goes crazy in a party. That, that's a supplanting of the true god with a, with a false god. That's one way in which idolatry is bad, and that is bad. But there's another way, and I think it's a little more subtle. And that's this, that in place of the image that God has created, we create other images to image God. Let me give you an example. In Exodus 32, many of you are familiar with this passage, even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard this, that at a certain moment, as Israel's walking through the wilderness, as they're walking between Egypt and the promised land, they come to this moment in which Moses goes onto the mountain to talk to God, but he's been gone for a really long time and they start getting nervous. Like, is he going to come back? Did he trip and fall? Did God kill him? Did a bear get him? What's happening? And so they they started to get nervous. So they turned to Aaron. They're like, hey, Aaron, we need to pray to the God. Um, So let's do this. Let's gather up your jewelry. We're going to melt it down and we're going to form an image to pray to. Now, what's fascinating in this passage, I originally thought, oh, they were creating another God. Maybe they were going, running back to some Egyptian God. And that's why they formed it into the image of a calf, the golden calf that we're familiar with. It's actually not true. They refer to it as Yahweh. What they did was they displaced the image that God had given us in place of a different image and saw God through the lens of a golden calf instead of seeing it through the lens that he'd given them to see him through. That's way more subtle. And it's way more prevalent for us in this room. Ways in which we think We see God best by the images that we create about him. For some of you, he's just a cosmic Mr. Rogers. He's a great, kind old man that leaves you alone. He does weird stuff in his backyard with puppets, but other than that, he's a nice guy. For some of you, you see God as Thor. Like, he's really powerful. He does really cool stuff. Occasionally, he's unhinged and gets drunk too much. We create these all kinds of these images. Now, most of you, if I ask you, how do you see God? You would not give me that answer. But the way that you respond to him tells me that you actually do image him that way. Imagine him that way. Instead of running to him to fulfill us, we run to other images 
images of power, of control, of affluence or influence, pleasure, respect. What are the things that I feel like I need to be fulfilled in life? I run to those instead of run to God. So the first way we deny the image is through idolatry, but the second is through objectification. Objectification. Instead of respecting the people that God has created, we turn them in our minds and in our relationships, we turn them into objects to control. We use people. We don't love people. We begin to treat other people like products, avenues for me to get what I want. We, it, it, it shapes how we look at other people. It shapes about how we speak about other people. Guys, let me just ask, like, do you honor the image of God with, with people in your life by the way you talk behind their back or maybe talk online about them? Maybe, maybe you're bold enough, you just say it straight to their face. But do we honor them in a way that they ought to be honored? Do we honor the image of God, I should say, upon them? How do we treat others? Because here's my fear, is that so often we treat people, we turn people into objects to help us get, get to the next thing. So we're going to use somebody to get up the next round of the ladder, of this corporate ladder, as I, as I build a successful career. I'm going to treat people uh, as, as, as a blanket to try to comfort me when I feel empty inside. I objectify people. Here's the problem. As soon as I objectify people, I dehumanize them. As soon as I objectify a person, I dehumanize them. This can take lots of different shapes, but let's name a couple of them. The reason that porn is so destructive is that it sexualizes an image bearer of God and turns them into an instrument, an object. It's dehumanizing to sexualize others. How about when we demonize them? We speak as if there's no good in them, as, there, as if there's no potential in them. We treat them as if they're rubbish. We dehumanize them. Another way we do this is we instrumentalize them. We treat them, we te- we t- we treat them as a technique or an instrument so that I can get what I want. I'm lonely, I'm going to go find somebody to be an instrument for my satis- satisfaction. When we do this, when we objectify people, we are subtly denying the reality of the image of God that has been placed upon them. Thirdly, we do this through the idea of the curated self. In other words, that we, instead of being who God has created, we feel the need to try to project a different image to the world, and we curate that. Instead of actually being who God has made me to be, I'm going to show you a version of me that I wish was true, that I wish was real. I'm going to manufacture something to present to you. I think this, this one is so subtle in the way that we, we begin to treat ourselves as, 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 as some form of object to manipulate, to change the way in which you view me. We create our own ethics. We create our own meaning. We shape our own identity. And we try to craft ourselves into the image that either we want you to see us as or we think you want to see us as. It's just another way of dehumanizing, but in this case, we're dehumanizing ourselves. So I think it's important to recognize like all of us are guilty of all three of these things. 
This isn't out there. This is in here. This is in our hearts. And what I want us to do is slow down enough to recognize it. Because the gift that God has given us and every single human you will meet is unimaginably important. It matters. So here's a question. Is there hope? Can we be redeemed in our understanding of Imago Dei? And the beauty is, the answer is yes. Now I'm going to give you three long theology terms because I'm a nerd, and then I'm going to walk us through them and explain them. The, the, I think three Christian doctrines that help reframe and re, re, redeem our understanding of the Imago Dei are these three theo, theological concepts. The incarnation, the theology of sanctification, and the theology of glorification. Let's look at the first one, incarnation. This is one we actually talk about in church quite often. It's the idea that God himself takes on human flesh which is just, how do you get your head around that? How do you get your head around the idea that God, the one who created everything, in order to redeem us from our own sin that we earned, instead of throwing us into the trash heap like a, like a rolled up piece of paper and starting over on the, white, on the dry erase board, he actually becomes human suffers under the effects of our sin, walks through all the horrors that we walk through as humans. He experienced it. He was tempted beyond anything we've ever been tempted by. He's seen the, the, the deepest depths of human sin and depravity and been impacted by them. He chose to do that. But here's what's fascinating in this idea of the Imago Dei. What does this mean? It means that the image, or that the, that the original became the image. That the original God to whom the image is supposed to point actually became the image himself. It is this, friends, the idea that Jesus is both the image and the original. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 3. Speaking of the gospel, and even if our gospel is veiled, listen to this, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? The image of God. In other words, the gospel... What the enemy wants to do is blind in our minds this gospel, and he does it by blinding our understanding to the Jesus is the image of God. He is the, he is the true and better Imago Dei. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us or to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the what? In the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we want to see the image of God par excellence, look at Jesus. The second truth is the idea of sanctification. 
This is a Christian doctrine that simply says this, that those that have trusted Jesus who have been justified, their sins have been forgiven. As I have placed my faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is given to me and is at work to turn me into look more like the image of Jesus. He's here to sanctify me, to make me holy as God himself is holy. Now, if you're like me, that path's a little wondering, and it's not always up and to the right. But it's a promise that God is not letting us go. That the God who saves us from our sin will save us from our sins by actually changing us into the image of Jesus. You see, friends, we don't, we, we don't go like, we lost the image of God, let's go find it. That's not how we recover the image of God. We simply are being called to live into what is true. You are made in the image of God. Now live like it. Now live like it. Paul says it this way in, Corinthian, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 3. Turn there real quick. He writes to this church and he says, he's writing to the church at Colossae. Here's, I think Paul would just say this to us. He'd say, hey, frontline Yukon, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And then to make sure you squirmed, he lists a bunch of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, listen, you must put them all away. See if anybody gets away from this list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after what? The image of its creator. Your transformation through the work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit changing you into the image of Jesus, is to help you live out the image of God to live in the reality that you are made as image bearers. Lastly, let's look at glorification. Glorification is this beautiful, profound, hard-to-grasp concept that, that God says this, what I start, I'm going to finish. So when he starts our redemption, he's going to finish. When he says, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15, that when, when Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection, something in us changes. We're moved from perishable to imperishable. This idea of glorification is that that process is going to happen for those who trust in Jesus. We will live forever, every single one of us. Which means, in some sense, and I don't fully understand all of this, we will carry the image of God with us forever, even as we sit in the presence of the original himself. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now let the weight of this hit. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory 
and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But then he says this, to these that have trusted Jesus who have not been, they're not going to receive this because they're good enough or because they earned it back, but simply because God in his grace gives it to them through faith in Jesus. But our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20. And it it is, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This verse is shocking if you'll let it land. All humans have eternity ahead of them. There are no temporary beings. And the Bible tells us that some, because of Jesus, will find eternal life. And some, he, rejecting that life, will be given over to eternal death. This matters, folks. This matters. This idea of the Imago Dei should, should radically affect how we see others. It should change the way that we see our neighbor. It should change the way we see our coworker. Hey, friends, it should change the way you see the enemy, the person that betrayed you last week. It should change the way you see yourself. Some of you are so covered up in shame and so covered up by fear that you don't think you're worth anything. And God would say, you're worth my son. You should change the way you see yourself. Not in some kind of self-help way, but in a holy calling kind of way. And friends, as it changes how we see others and see ourselves, it will change how we see God. It will. And it will call us into this holy calling of the Imago Dei that we live into the responsibility that he has given us. We live as his representatives in the world and we live in relationship with him. I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis because he's C.S. Lewis and nobody else can say it like him. He says this in his, the end of his brilliant essay, The Weight of Glory. I highly, if you've never read that essay, go find it. It's worth, it's worth some time. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with uh, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be permanently solemn. No, we must play. But our, but our merriment must be of the kind. Indeed, and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. Now, let me stop right there. Like how more seriously can you take anybody but that they are an image bearer of God? He tells us, don't be solemn play. With no flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. But our charity must be of a real and costly love. 
with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence that parodies life or parodies love as flippancy parodies, parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, let, this, let the weight of this hit you. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Friends, this is true. And it should shape everything we do in this world. And God, would you do that in us, I pray. Let's pray.